Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant and in today's episode I'm joined by an author who's taken on the ultimate challenge, rewriting Shakespeare in the year of the 400th anniversary of the Bard's death. He's here to talk about Shylock is my name, his own interpretation of Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. And he's brought along a selection of objects that have shaped and inspired his writing. He's the Man Booker Prize winner and self-proclaimed Jewish Jane Austen. Howard Jacobson. Howard, welcome. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me here. Oh, it is a privilege and a delight. Howard, Shylock is My Name is your 14th novel, but it's rather different to its predecessors as it was a commission. Please tell me how that came about. My agent rang me. You always like it when your agent rings you. And I was just coming to the end of my previous novel, Jay. Mm -hmm. So when my agent said there's a commission... I was more interested than I might have been normally. I had, I had a space. And a commission, do we do, do we do commissions? He said, no, we don't normally do commissions, but I think this is very interesting. Shakespeare's 400th coming up, I knew that, and they would like you to do a modern novel based on a play. And I said, Hamlet. I'd love to do Hamlet. <laughs> and he went very quiet. He said, I'll talk to them. And he talked to them, and then he came back, I said, Macbeth. We went through the tragedies, we went through the problem plays, we went through the late plays, we went through the comedies. One play I forgot to mention was The Merchant of Venice, wouldn't you know? It turned out that although I could do any novel I wanted to do, the novel they wanted me to do was The Merchant. For some reason... For some reason, as I, as I said with, to my, my agent, we had a little laugh. Why would they want me to do that? And I was not excited by this because it was not, as it turned out, one of my favourite plays. I hadn't, in my years as an academic, I hadn't taught it. The very first book I wrote was a book about Shakespeare. I hadn't mentioned The Merchant. The Merchant of Venice was not on my, not on my radar. So was it a daunting task tackling one of th- this particular play? It would have been a daunting task tackling any play because I am, well, who isn't, but I truly am a reverer of Shakespeare. I, I love it. I love him. I hear him. I don't think I've ever written a book without, you know, somewhere other willfully or unconsciously quoting him probably on every page. I just hear the music. I hear the language. So the thought of actually going anywhere near felt to me immediately sacrilegious. And the first thing I'm sure everybody who gets a commission like this to do a modern novel based on an old thing, the first thing you do is you think, I'll just find a modern equivalent. Mm -hmm. And my first thought was, and I'll set it in London, in Little Venice. That's clever, isn't it? In Little Venice. And and you kind of go on with that. And then a couple of weeks of thinking in, you think, this is actually naff. This really is not going to work. So, Howard, rather than London, you decided to set your interpretation of Shakespeare's tale of prejudice, loss, justice and revenge and that all-important pound of flesh in Cheshire's leafy golden triangle, an affluent suburban idyll populated by socialites, reality TV stars and footballers. Why this setting? Yes. Well, you've got to do something with Belmont, which is, which is where Portia lives, mm-hmm. which is some kind of enchanted isle, in a way, almost a utopia, where they have exquisite manners, where those who, who seek Portia's hand have to travel and then face that very, very obvious casket test. And, and, and the, Money uh, of the box. Yes, yes, open <laughs> the box. And there they, there they all later repair to live as they think it, you know, ex- lives of exquisite feeling and poetry and some actually quite grotty sexual innuendo talk. I didn't think immediately I know where that is, but I thought, where is a... Re- I, know a re- I know a place of great refinement and, and money, remember. She's an heiress. I know where the heiresses live. 
south of Manchester, otherwise known as North Cheshire, a place I used to visit when I was a boy growing up in Manchester. I just thought that's the nearest thing I can think of to Belmont. It's called the Golden Triangle, and that just seemed perfect for it. I knew that the part of Shylock that I wanted to do in the modern equivalent would be Shylock the father. For some reason, although I don't have a daughter, um, fathers and daughters struck me as one of the most interesting things to talk about. And to transfer that part of the story to now, that story will tell at any time. So I invented a character called Strulovich, who's still in the novel and has has a similar situation. I thought this isn't good enough, though. Shylock is too good. You can't have somebody else being Shylock. You have to have Shylock. So I just thought that's it just occurred to me one day, Shylock has to be there. 500 years old, yeah, but he's a modern man, middle-aged, probably well-dressed, good Italian tailoring, and there he will be. And what was going to be my Shylock, my Strulovich, my equivalent, will meet him. And they will have conversations throughout the novel about the whole business of being men, being fathers, being alone because Shylock's wife has died and Strulovich's wife has had a stroke. So they're both lonely men. Not easy bringing up a daughter at any time, but bringing up a daughter when you've got no wife to help you for a man, very, very difficult. And they'll also talk about being Jewish men. And once I had that idea, it, um, for me anyway, flew. it just flew, yes. Perfect cue to go to meet Sudovich in the opening of the audiobook of Sherlock Is My Name, read by Michael Kitchen. It is one of those better-to-be-dead-than-alive days you get in the north of England in February. The space between the land and sky a mere letterbox of squeezed light. The sky itself unfathomably banal. A stage unsuited to tragedy, even here where the dead lie quietly. There are two men in the cemetery, occupied in duties of the heart. They don't look up. In these parts, you must wage war against the weather if you don't want fast to claim you. Signs of just such a struggle are etched on the face of the first of the mourners, a man of middle age and uncertain bearing who sometimes walks with his head held arrogantly high and at others stoops as though hoping not to be seen. His mouth, too, is twitchy and misleading, his lips one moment twisted into a sneer, The next fallen softly open, as vulnerable to bruising as summer fruit. He is Simon Strudovich, a rich, furious, easily hurt philanthropist with on-again-off-again enthusiasms, a distinguished collection of 20th-century Anglo-Jewish art and old Bibles, a passion for Shakespeare, whose genius and swashbuckling Sephardi looks he once thought could only be explained by the playwright's ancestors having changed their name from Shapiro, but now he isn't sure, Honorary doctorates from universities in London, Manchester and Tel Aviv. The one from Tel Aviv is something else he isn't sure about. And a daughter going off the rails. He is here to inspect the stone that has recently been erected at the head of his mother's grave, now that the twelve months of mourning for her has elapsed. He hasn't mourned her conscientiously during that period too busy buying and lending art, too busy with his foundations and endowments, or benefacting, as his mother called it, with a mixture of pride and concern. She didn't want him killing himself, giving money away. Too busy settling scores in his head, too busy with his daughter. 
but he intends to make amends. There is always time to be a better son. Or a better father. Could it be that it's his daughter he's really getting ready to mourn? These things run in families. His father had briefly mourned him. You are dead to me. And why? Because of his bride's religion. Yet his father wasn't in the slightest bit religious. Better you were dead at my feet. Would that really have been better? We can't get enough of dying, he thinks, shuffling between the unheralded headstones. We. An idea of belonging to which he sometimes subscribes and sometimes doesn't. We arrive, lucky to be alive, carrying our belongings on a stick and immediately look for somewhere to bury the children who betray us. Sherlock Who's My Name is a novel about what it means to be Jewish and obviously based on The Merchant of Venice, which is one of Shakespeare's most highly charged and for a modern audience, more disturbing and troubling works, the tale of the Jew Sherlock, who's determined to take a pound of flesh from the debtor merchant Antonio. For you as a Jewish novelist, how difficult was that to deal with? Well, it wasn't painful. It was exhilarating. Every time I write a novel, I say, and, and it turns out to be, whether, it, whether I thought it was going to be at the beginning or not, a novel about Jewishness, I say, that's, that's the last time I'm doing that. What I'm trying to say is it's a subject which I sometimes think I've exhausted, but the minute I come to deal with it again, I haven't exhausted it. It is, I now realise, inexhaustibly interesting. It's inexhaustibly interesting to the human race, since they can't stop talking about Jewishness and Jews. I mean, after all, this play was written when there were no Jews in England to speak of. Shakespeare almost certainly never met one. And yet Elizabethan England was abuzz with conversations about Jews. And you're not just, you're not just now, 400 years later, dealing with the play Shakespeare wrote. You're dealing with all those hundreds of years of responses to Shylock. The play comes with that baggage, the knowledge that it was for centuries a play that represented the Jew, the Jew in the worst possible light. That's how the play was conceived. My argument with that is that the people who conceive the play like that aren't reading the play Shakespeare wrote. That isn't what Shakespeare wrote. But for many years and for many people, that was the play that they got. Shylock was the vile, moneylender, rapacious, greedy, materialistic, obdurate, anti-Christian, and in every, in, in every other way, a loathsome figure. I don't think the play gives one the license to say almost any of those things. So I thought, here's the opportunity to not just enter into Shylock, which I've tried to do and, 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 and welcomed, but to be in an argument at the same time. So this was a novel which had other things within it. There's a kind of, there are buried essays, if you like, in it. That was the other challenge, how to take on the way this play has been read, as well as how I read the play. How did you go about taking The Merchant of Venice and English literature's most famous Jew from stage to page? One of the reasons I think I was the play had not figured for me in a, in a big way. It was not one of my favorite plays. We did it at school when I was about 13, mm -hmm. um, and I was asked to read Shylock. Were we you at an all-Jewish school? No, or? Oh, no. Okay. Well, there were probably were about 15, 20% Jewish. So for some reason, the teacher said, Howard Jacobson, you can, you you can will read, read Shylock. Shylock. You will read Shylock. 
And I was very shy then, still am very shy, but very shy then. And to read anything was was a pain. Mm -hmm. But to read this one was a particular pain. And people think when I say that, oh, is that because of you, you found it anti-Semitic? I didn't, actually. It was almost the opposite. It was when I came to read Hasna Jewais and all that, I thought this is so sympathetic mm -hmm. to the Jew, I'm embarrassed to be doing it. So that was one of the reasons I, I put it away. Mm -hmm. Then I had to read, okay, I said, I'd, let me reread the play and let's see if I really want to do it when the commission came in. And immediately, it wasn't the play I'd remembered. It was a sharper, funnier play from the first moment. The play opens with Antonio being self-indulgent. I'm so sad. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is, this is funny. Shakespeare. Shakespeare is enjoying himself at the expense of these rather refined people who have fine feelings and demonstrate their fine feelings partly by saying how sad they are and partly by spitting, spitting on, on the nearest Jew that they can find. <laughs> I thought, this is, this is looking fun to me. And the minute I then got on to Shylock, it wasn't the Shylock I remembered because because the first Shylock you get isn't hasn't a Jew eyes. And anyway, that's nothing like the cringing thing that I made it when I read it at school. Mm -hmm. I thought at once he's wittier, he's stronger, he's cleverer, he's much more teasing. The pound of flesh is a sardonic game. No one knows where he's coming from. I thought this is, uh, he is fantastic. And I thought this play is marvellous. Howard, you've brought in five very personal objects Please could you describe the first one, which is a photograph of... Well, this is a photograph of my granny, Andy, I called her. And um, What was her full name? Bessie Black. Uh, she was my mother's mother, and it was she and my mother and my mother's sister who brought me up. My father was in, was, uh, in the army, and the three of them, the three women, brought me up. I was... Very, very close to my grandma. She's the middle figure. Mm -hmm. um, look She's at in a bag. coat. Yeah, but look at and the bag. And a bag and a hat bag and glasses. It looks as though it's come from Woolworths for toppers. <laughs> On either side of her, I always thought they were her sisters, but they're not. Yeah. They're cousins. And they did better than her. They made better marriages. I remember them. I was taken to see them. They lived in Liverpool, and I was taken to see them when I was a little boy. And I, they were formidable women. Auntie Anne was one of them. But my grandma wasn't formidable. She was quiet. She was very gentle. She, she talked about the Almighty a lot. It's in the hands of the Almighty. She was very fatalistic. She would take me around the parts of Manchester we lived, and it was almost like going around a, a kind of an Eastern European shtetl, like a little ghetto. She took me to the kosher butchers. She took me to the kosher delicatessens. She would go into some shops where she spoke Yiddish. There were people there in Manchester. I had a grand, her, um, her husband's mother, uh, who lived to the age of 92, never spoke a word of English. She just spoke Yiddish. It was an area where it was a place that, you know, was devoted to and celebrated Jewish life. And did she it was, feel like a hermetically sealed yes, community in yes, a sense? Yes, it did. So you, you knew unequivocally that you were Jewish? Oh, there was no question of that. Yeah. There was no question of that. But there was, it was a wonderfully secular time. Manchester was a wonderfully secular town. And being Jewish in Manchester in the 40s and 50s was fantastic, I think, because you were aware of it. Mm -hmm. the, you were aware that at 13 you were going to be bar mitzvah. You were aware that your parents hoped that you would, when you came to marry, you would have a, a Jewish wife and not a non-Jewish wife. Those were sort of building pressures. And you would hear stories of terrible things that had happened in the next street where, you know, someone had a Jewish boy or girl had married a non-Jewish and the family had, you know, mourned them as though they were dead. And so there was... Some and of did the, you tow the family so, line when you got married? Half. Half. 
I mean, that's another story. Half, good. Half. It was adequate. <laughs> it was not perfect, but it was adequate. In Shylock is My Name, the art dealer Strudovich is joined by Shakespeare's own Shylock, who has wandered through time to the same frosty Magister Cemetery. Here he is visiting his wife, Leah's grave, in an extract from the audiobook of Shylock is My Name. The second person, here long before Strulovich arrived, tenderly addressing the occupant of a grave whose headstone is worn to nothing, is Shylock, also an infuriated and tempestuous Jew, though his fury tends more to the sardonic than the mercurial, and the tempest subsides when he is able to enjoy the company of his wife, Leia, buried deep beneath the snow. He is less divided in himself than Strulovich, but perhaps for that very reason more divisive. No two people feel the same about him. Even those who unreservedly despise him, despise him with different degrees of unreservation. He has money worries that Strulovich doesn't, collects neither art nor Bibles, and finds it difficult to be charitable where people are not charitable to him, which some would say takes something from the soul of charity. About his daughter, the least said the better. He is not an occasional mourner like Strulovich. He cannot leave and think of something else. Because he is not a forgetful or a forgiving man, there never was or will be something else. Strulovich, pausing in his reflections, feels Shylock's presence before he sees him, a blow to the back of the neck as though someone in the cemetery has been irreverent enough to throw a snowball. The words, My dearest Leia, dropped like blessings into the icy grave, reach Strulovich's ears. There will be many layers here. Strulovich's mother was a layer, but this layer attracts an imperishable piteousness to her name that is unmistakable to Strulovich, student of husbandly sorrow and fatherly wrath. Leia, who bought Shylock a courtship ring. Leia mother to Jessica, who stole that ring to buy a monkey. Jessica, the pattern of perfidy. Not for a wilderness of monkeys would Shylock have parted with that ring. Strulovich neither. So we does mean something to Strulovich after all. The faith Jessica violates is his faith. Such, anyway, are the only clues to recognition Strulovich needs. He is hard-headed about it. Of course Shylock is here among the dead. When hasn't he been? And that was Michael Kitchen reading from the audiobook Shylock is My Name. Although it's been claimed that The Merchant of Venice is an anti-Semitic play, Shakespeare actually gives Shylock one of his most powerful speeches as he asks his Jew-hating abusers, If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? What do you think Shakespeare's intentions were when writing the play? Tough. Tough ever knowing what Shakespeare's intentions were. And even even if we could, you know, even if we were to find a letter written by Shakespeare saying, these are my intentions, it doesn't mean that's the play yeah. he wrote, you know. We, I'm, I'm a great believer in writers not writing what they think 
their their writing, um, and being better. All writers are better than their, all artists are better than their intentions. The one thing I certainly know for sure he was not doing was writing a play attacking Jews. That he would have inherited a whole bunch of rubbish about Jews goes without saying. The medieval idea of the Jew as killer of Christ had not gone away, that the Jew was murderous, that the Jew was interested only in money and lent money at interest, and that was a crime. That was the idea of the Jew. Such a view of Jews, Shakespeare would have inherited because that was the version of the Jew that was around. So that's what a Jew is for Shakespeare. That doesn't make him or anybody else who receives this view of the the Jew over hundreds and hundreds of years an anti-Semite. Nothing in Shakespeare's instincts would allow him to be anti-anything. Anybody who's an outsider in Shakespeare, anybody whom the mob jeers at or mistrusts, wins Shakespeare's sympathy. He doesn't like what the mass of men believe. Wherever people are out of, out of their, on the edges of their community or not understood by their community, Shakespeare does more than sympathise, better than sympathy. What's sympathy worth? He gives you what it is to be them. It's inward. And I think that's what he wanted to do. I'm going to give you what it is to be a Jew. Forever on the side of the underdog. How symbolic is your next object, which is a table tennis bat? Huh. Well... Is table tennis a particularly Jewish pastime? Well, it was, you know, it was, you know, at the time. But it was a game that we all played in Manchester. Every Jewish boy I know, I knew, played table. We all played table tennis. The game was already a game much played by by intellectuals, particularly in Middle and Eastern Europe. The first world champion of table tennis was a professor of philology. Um, you often see pictures of them, they played in cardigans, which is how Jewish boys would, I say, I'm doing stereotyping the Jew now. Um, I'll Careful. stereotype the Jew still, still more when I say it was the kind of game that our mothers thought it would be safe for us to play rather than those horrible physical contact games. But it somehow or other, there was something about table tennis suited us. The way it was played then, the game's changed since. We haven't got time to talk about the history of table tennis and how it changed. The game that, that I fell in love with and played very seriously. And still and that, do. Uh, no. Oh, and that okay. bat you're holding, I have to tell you, won several championships. Did it? Um, was a game of, you know, it was kind of slightly introverted. It was witty. We'd feel our way with, with one another playing it. It wasn't wildly athletic. I've called it chess in sports. We played it rather like chess. This is the bat with which I became Manchester Junior Champion when I was 14 and played for Lancashire. And this is the bat that I, when I played for Cambridge a few years later, we beat Oxford with this bat. So it's seen a bit, this bat. I played it very, very seriously. So it is a ping pong exactly mirroring your conversation and debate in your life and in your novel. Yeah. If you can be so. Yeah, yeah. Ping pong was, yes. Ping pong. Yes, it was sort of verbal. I wrote a novel about it called The Mighty Waltzer. But it was a very important part of my life, table tennis. It got me out. I started when I was about 13. My parents were very worried about me. I got very shy. I was making a very bad job of adolescence, as though anyone makes a good job. But I was making a particularly bad job of it. And this felt a rather healthy thing for me to be doing. So turning back to Sherlock is my name, much of the novel is about debating. Sherlock joins Strudovich from 16th century Venice to argue about what Jewishness is exactly. Let's dip back into the audiobook of Sherlock is my name to hear one of their discussions. Strudovich looked long into his guest's fierce, melancholy eyes. His own were undistinguished, a pearly, 
uncertain grey the colour of the North Sea on a blustery day, Shylocks were deep ponds of pitted umber, like old oil paint that had somehow, not by restoration, more by inadvertent rubbing, regained its sheen. They were dark with that Rembrandtian darkness that holds light. Ironic that when Strudovich looked into them, he felt as though he were in the crypt of a church. We are not the slightest bit alike, he thought, except in what we feel for our daughters. So what was it Gentiles saw that told them they were both Jews? Shylock knew from the intensity of Strudovich's scrutiny what he was thinking. No, we aren't remotely alike, he said. Not in appearance, nor in the manner we have lived our lives. You don't keep a kosher house, you don't attend synagogue, and I am prepared to wager you don't speak a word of Hebrew. So what does it mean to say we are both Jewish? I'm more interested in what it means to them. What do they see that unites us? Something older than themselves, Shylock said. In you, maybe. I don't intend that unkindly. I know how you intend it, but in you, too. It isn't wear and tear, it's an inability to be indifferent. You might think you don't believe, but you're still listening to ancient injunction. But that makes me no different from a Muslim or a Christian. Yes, it does. Christians are so anxious to accommodate to the modern, they have stopped listening. They sing carols and call it faith. Before long, there will be none of them left. The long interregnum will have come to an end, and we'll be back with just pagans and Jews. And Muslims? Yes, and Muslims, but they are out on their own in an argument with everybody but themselves. Look at you, you are riven. Islam does not encourage the schizophrenia you live by. When a Muslim listens to ancient injunction, he attends with the whole of himself and finds a sort of peace in it. Peace? Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan? Stop. You don't have to name every failed country in the Middle East. I'm talking about an inner conviction of peace. However we judge the political consequences, we Jews are more self-suspicious, always wondering if it's time to defect, but knowing there's nothing we could finally bear to defect too. Reading by the great Michael Kitchen. Throughout Charlotte is My Name, there is a sense of history repeating itself. Four centuries later, a wrong Jewish father is still determined to get his very own pound of flesh. Is the message that things haven't really changed at all? Maybe it is, you know. The novel previous to this, which was called Jay, which was a dystopian novel uh, about some unnamed catastrophe having happened that looks remarkably like a Holocaust or something like that, if anything can look remarkably like a Holocaust, grew out of, is about and grew out of a feeling I was having watching anti-Semitism alive again in some form or another in Europe, a feeling that it's never going to go away, this is it, that whatever it is that... Uh, people don't like when they see Jews, they're always going to see it. It will never stop. The, the, the thought that you could that hear again on the streets of Europe, you know, the, Hitler was right. Uh, it may only be a minority of lunatics that are saying it, but nonetheless, there is a minority of lunatics saying it. The fact that these things just will not go away makes you feel, well, what, what more has to happen? What will make, if the Holocaust itself didn't make it go away? Mm-hmm. So the question has to be asked, what is this thing? Just what is this thing that will not go away? And it's a question that Jews ask of themselves and that Shylock and Strulovich ask of themselves because, you know, there's a very sinister turn it can take. And it does take this turn in some Jews, which is what if the thing that, that people who hate Jews seeing Jews is there? 
What if we are a bit like that? What if we deserve it? If we are attacked enough, we will believe that we deserve to be attacked. So that's one of the things that they, one of the things that Shylock and Strulovich talk about. And the fact that we have a modern Jew talking about it to a Jew from 400 years ago, you know, if you like, underlines that. that the fact that they are able to talk about this as though not much has changed. And although in many, many ways much has changed, the, the, the fact that we're living in a world in which Jews are worse than spat at now and, and we're reading a play in which Jews were spat at then, I mean, it's a, powerful, it's a powerful image that having those two Jews having that same conversation again. And in 400 years, it's my bet, if we have a world in 400 years, they'll still be having this conversation. Your next object, Howard, takes you back to your university days and it's a signed copy of F.R. Leavis's Two Cultures. Can you tell me about this, please? Yes. Uh, F.R. Leavis was my, was my teacher at Cambridge. I'd been introduced to him in my final year at school by an English teacher and was immediately hooked upon, upon his books. Two things above all I liked at that stage. One was that he was you know, a, a discriminator or he was nothing. These are the good books, those aren't. That appealed to me. And the other side of it was wonderful, close reading of, of poems and texts, and I loved that. When Leavis talks about reading Wordsworth or talks about reading Keats, you just he gives you the experience of what it's like to read. It's as though you've, you're not, not just at the shoulder of another reader, but you're inside another reader, line by line. This is what it's like to feel that. I didn't care what a writer thought or what a writer believed, and I still don't. You know, I think writers' opinions are the least interesting things about them. Well, people's opinions are the least interesting things about them. But everything happens in the language. In, 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 as, as for me, in art, everything happens in, in the... It's there in the paint. Now, is it true when you first met him that it was a mistaken identity? <laughs> I thought he was the college porter. That's to say, I was very, very... Uh, I thought the college porter was him, is how I should say. And I was very, very deferential to the college porter for my first week before I'd met Lewis and I had a class with him. And this college porter did wonder why I would come up to him and talk about Macbeth in the way I did. And the college porter was very... Yes, sir, I think you're right, sir. Just slowly, I thought there's something not quite, not quite right about this. You were a teacher and a lecturer for many years yourself, but before you started writing fiction, did that help to equip you as an author, do you think? I felt for a long time it hindered me because we had such high expectations of what writing could do and also how, you know, how good the good stuff was. So I wanted to write, I mean, Dickens was my favourite writer, but also Henry James and late Henry James. So I wanted to write a little bit like Dickens and a little bit like late Henry James, which would have been difficult for anybody, but particularly difficult for me, given my experience as someone who'd grown up in working-class Manchester, helped my father on the markets. My father sold tat, and our house was full of tat, or swag as we called it, and I played table tennis. And also I had the consciousness all the time of what would Levis say, what would Levis say. And it took me a long time to just think, well, you know, bugger what Leavitt would say in the end. You know, what would Jacobs say? I have say? to do, yeah, 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 yeah. Here's another extract from Shylock is My Name. Strulovich is struggling with his Jewish identity and discusses his resentment of synagogue-attending Jews with his wife Kay. He didn't go to synagogue because going to synagogue irked him, but not to go irked him just as much. Look at them, he'd say, if they happened to be driving past the synagogue on a Saturday morning. Look at them in their fucking yarmulkes. What are they doing, remembering to go every fucking week? Don't they ever just forget? Don't they have anything else to think about? 
Leave them alone, Kay would tell him. You don't want to go to shul, they do. It's not your business. What do you care? I don't care. Then why are you swearing? Because they're praying. So? Being Jewish isn't just about praying. For you, no. For me, no. For them, yes. It's not Jewish, he'd shout, saying, for me, no, for them, yes, that's Christian talk. We are a people who value X above Y because X is true and Y isn't. This is called ethics, Kay. It's what we're famed for. For me, no. So for them, no. Strula, why does it matter to you so much what's Jewish and what isn't? It doesn't. I don't give a shit about Jews. The next day, he'd be throwing the Guardian in the bin, saying that Jews were on the brink of extermination. It was the Guardian's fault. Kay wondered why he had never gone to Israel and enlisted with the IDF. Israel? What's Israel got to do with anything? I thought you were a Zionist. A Zionist? Me? Are you mad? So why are you burning the Guardian? I'm not burning it. I'm binning it. Interesting, though, that you said burning. I'd call that a Freudian slip. You're remembering the ovens. That's what reading the Guardian does to you. Why would reading The Guardian make me think of ovens? Because The Guardian hates Israel, and Israel is the only place that will save us when they start the ovens up again. So you are a Zionist. Only when I read The Guardian. How do you become known for speaking out on what you see as growing anti-Semitism in the UK, justified as being anti-Israel sentiment? How far did this feed into your writing of Shylock is my name? Not much. I mean, I think that bit that's just been read out so Was nicely, it? it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, the anti-Semitism that I discern, and I'm even uncomfortable about calling it anti-Semitism. Here I am like Strulovich. Yes, no, yes. Uh, ping pong. That's, that's the, uh, yes, ping pong. That's Yes, good. That's the argument. But the anti-Semitism, I don't discern about the place in people where I go on the streets. I've encountered a tiny bit of it. But I do encounter it in commentators, and I do encounter it in um, in the way that Israel is is talked about. It crops up. I mean, I've written this enough. My, you know, my novel, The Finkler Question, tackles all this at length, and I've written about it in article after article. And I didn't want to do it again here. So the bit that you've heard is the only bit that you get in this book about that. So a bit of a change of mood now with your next object, a recording of Georges Guitary singing La Bella Margarita, which is... Oh, my goodness me, I love just the smell of it. Mm. It's a 78 Columbia Records, the finest name on record, it says, standard 78 RPM. Please, can you tell me about that? Did you ever know that song? La Bella Margarita. I used to sing it when I was a little boy. I had a taste. This was before I became a Levis man. I had a taste for schmaltz. It came from the kind of music that my mother loved. If you, if you look on YouTube now yeah. and you look at Georges Guthrie, who is the, the French, he was a French heartthrob, singing this song, La Balle Margarita, from the musical Bless the Bride, which came out in the late 40s, I think. You look at YouTube and you'll see a thousand comments in which everybody says, oh, I love that my mother loved this. Yeah. It was a song that our mothers <laughs> loved. Absolutely. This is My Lovely Day was another one from that musical. And I had all those records. And I, while my, while my friends were listening to... I don't think Bill Haley had happened yet, or jazz or something. I was listening to this. I didn't know any other little boy who listened to this. I listened to it with my mother. I can sing all these songs to this day. I would like to have been Georges Guthrie. I once had his accent. I could sing these songs age nine in his accent, this kind of French heart-throbby seducer's accent. And when I jeer at the musicals that people go to see 
now, my wife reminds me of my taste for the schlock of the... But this is a much... I mean, Bless the Bride is a much higher quality schlock than what they're going to now. It was... The sentimentality was kind of rooted in a certain old, you know, Viennese, and you could hear that in that sort of music. And I was a sucker for it. Howard, your final object is a pillbox, which I think represents one of your greatest successes as an author. Yes. Now... My wife started to do these for me a few years ago. With the publication of every new novel, she goes out and she gets a silver pillbox made with enamelling of the cover of the book with a little inscription inside with the date, sometimes a message from her with love and sometimes just the name of the book, publication date. This was the one that she had done for The Finkler Question. And what I, pills do you keep in this pillbox? No, 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 I can't keep anything in them. I just have them on the, I just have them on the sideboard just because they are... Beautiful things. Beautiful objects. Beautiful objects in themselves, yes. I have reached the age where I could fill them all with pills, actually, but I've never <laughs> thought so. And, th- and of course, this one is the important one because that's the Finkler question is the one which, against all the odds and against any expectations I had, went and won the Booker Prize. So how and important is it for you as a writer to make shortlists and win prizes? I'd love to be able to say I am indifferent to all that and it makes no difference whatsoever. And I never thought when I began writing that I would care about prizes, you know. That was not all I wanted to do was write. I mean, you're sucked in stage by stage. Yeah. It's the, the history, the, the downfall, you know. You start <laughs> off virtuous and you end up degenerate. That. You begin and all you want to do is write a novel and be, be, I want nothing else yeah. and be published. And then you publish and you think, well, now I wouldn't mind making some little bit of a living out of it and away you go and the next thing is you want very very good reviews and then you're not shortlisted for the book and then you know it begins to irk yeah. and then there is you know then is the there's the birth of, of a near vendetta there's me and the booker prize as book after book is not reckoned now i seem to be endlessly on booker prize long lists and short lists but you i have to tell you these days you need it you need it because it's harder and harder and harder to sell books sell serious books I hear people saying, members of my distant relations, I'll meet them at a bar mitzvah or a ruby wedding, and they'll go, never been able to read one of your books. It's so difficult. What do you mean it's so difficult? What's difficult? What's difficult? Well, there are words and ideas. People are so frightened of books now. There's a, the kind of literacy of the world I grew up in just doesn't exist anymore. It just doesn't exist. So you're going to write a comic book, a graphic novel. Well, they do well. They do well. Or children's book, of course, is the real thing. So <laughs> that's the, I'm afraid that's the truth of it. Mm-hmm. That without a big prize, it, a big prize brings your book to people's attention. And if you win the Man Booker Prize, it's astonishing. You were a late starting novelist in that you only published your first novel in your forties. Is this something that you always knew in your heart of hearts that you would do? Yeah, it's what I always wanted to do, and I never wanted to be anything else. I never, ever, ever, never, nothing I've ever wanted to be, not even a great table tennis player. Even then I knew this is just passing the time until I do what I'm really for, which is to write. And it wasn't just to write, it was to write novels. I had to write novels. I knew I was going to write I knew I wanted to write novels. But I revered novelists so much that I thought I could never do that. I remember lying in, in my little bed and looking at the few novels that I had and looking at their names and saying, you know, Jane Austen, George Eliot, Charlotte Bronte, T.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad. I thought Howard Jacobson sounds wrong. No, it will never happen. Howard Jacobson, no, it just sounds wrong. It's not to be. 
this was before I'd done any, any of the work. The reason it wasn't to be for so long was, you know, I didn't work hard enough and I didn't think hard enough about what I might do and get rid of some of the grandiose ideas of writing Anna Karenina immediately. So it was nothing to do with being called Howard Jacobson. Though I'm still surprised that anybody wants to buy a book by Howard Jacobson and maybe they don't. You know that they do. Tell me about the primary school teacher who believed in you. Oh, that story, Mrs. Herman. Yes, funny I remember that name. I was eight years old at Temple Primary School in Cheatham Hill in Manchester, and we were set set a project which was to write an article about newspapers. So I wrote an article about newspapers. When you were eight years old? Yeah, and then the bell went for break, and I put my hand up and said, Miss, Miss, can I stay in at break and finish writing? And all the other kids went, oh, yes, what, what, what? So I did, and wrote, apparently, what was a good piece about about newspapers, and she wrote a, a thing to my mother, which I can still see because my mother has it in a little frame, faded b- blue notepaper, nice handwriting. Hey, your Howard is wonderfully precocious. I've never read a piece of writing like this from someone his age. I'm sure he will go on to be a great writer. And my mother framed it, and that was a little, and it would be on 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 the television. <laughs> and did Mrs. Herman television. did Mrs. Herman live to see you become well, the writer? Here's that you the are. saddest thing. Three months after my first novel came out, a letter came from Mrs. Herman's sister saying, I'm so sad that my sister, who died a couple of years ago, did not live to see this. Because she often talked about how, I mean, this is years, this is 32 years later. She often talked about Howard and said, you know, I'm still sure it will happen. I'm st- and I'm sure she, she would have loved it. I cried. I shed a little tear when I, when I saw that. Because these teachers, you know, you've no idea what good you can do, what a seed you can plant. But without doubt, that played a part in my sense that I could do it because somebody believed I could do it and somebody important in that she was a teacher, so she yeah. knew, so she read what other people do. So it's not somebody in your own family because I, you know, I think anybody who's had some success in their life can account for one teacher who just said, I believe in you yep. and that you hang on to yep. that. Yep. It's, it makes a huge, huge, huge difference in there. They should be numbered among the saints. Well, Mrs. Herman is numbered among my saints. I have one too called Bunny Bards in Mine. Uh, novels like yours are now available as audiobooks. Do you think that this format helps to widen an audience for books? We don't listen to public speaking in the way that we the way that we once did. I think we, as a, just as a culture, have trouble hearing, making that leap of seeing the words live on the page, and an actor speaking them helps make them live. So the whole of Sherlock is my name is organised into numbered chapters, except for the final section, which is labelled Act Five. What's the significance of this nod to Shakespeare's five-act structure? The Merchant of Venice is a play, it seems to me, in which Shakespeare suddenly lost interest. He loses interest when Shylock's humiliated and gone. Mm-hmm. Finished, he's gone from the play. End of Act Four. As far as I'm concerned, there is no Act 5. Nothing happens. That bunch of bums I've talked about, Portia and Graciano and Antonia, go on footling about with rings and making protestations of loving each other and with a bit of talking dirty underneath. And Shakespeare, it seems to me, couldn't give a damn about them. He's just bored now, absolutely bored by them. And I often walk out at the end of Act 4. So you've directed the play, you just cut that... You just cut, the, yeah. cut the fifth yeah, act. Yeah, I, I go. And I did that recently at the Globe, only to discover that um, 
Jonathan Price yes. did a very good uh, Sherlock, I thought, Thank but had added at the end, they decided that they would add at the end of Act 5 a conversion scene where you actually see Shylock converted. So I missed that. There's no justification for that. I mean, Shylock in Shakespeare's play is not converted. And I, and I certainly would not in my novel do anything, convert Shylock when he had not been converted. So for me, the play is without an Act 5. But I can give him one little thing, which we're not going to talk about. One little thing. It's my gift to Shylock that he gets the Act 5 that Shakespeare never gave him. Which of Shakespeare's other plays would you most like to put your own version? I'm not sure I could do it again. My favourite play is Hamlet. I love Hamlet. I feel in Hamlet we get the sense of what Shakespeare probably was like. Just the way you see him with his friends and talking about the theatre and things, it all seems... A lot of it's not necessary to the play, I just feel it's Shakespeare. This is what relaxing with Shakespeare might have been like. But whether I would know how to do it or not, I don't know. Othello is a play I love, but I've written a novel that is not a million miles from Othello, as it turns out. So I don't think I will do, I don't think I will do this again, although it is a wonderful thing to do, and I've never had a better time. It was as though having Shakespeare underneath me, like, I don't know, a soft earth or something underneath. I could jump about. I could have fun somehow. It it ended up the opposite to what I expected. I thought I would be constrained by making a novel out of a Shakespeare play. But I was actually I was liberated because and I now realize why he did it all the time. Because, you know, as we all know, he just stole whatever he wanted. And it's a wonderful thing to do because you're kind of keeping keeping these stories, which are kind of stories that civilization either knows about or has heard about or has feelings for. You're keeping them going. Well, how apt that Hamlet should be your favourite Shakespeare play. And I think we have to see a Howard Jacobson-directed production with the ping-pong of to be or not to be. Howard, thank you very much for being our guest today on this podcast. Richard, thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you a lot. Also part of the Hogarth Shakespeare series, The Gap of Time is Jeanette Winterson's retelling of Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale. Set in London, a city reeling after the 2008 financial crisis and a storm-ravaged American city called New Bohemia. Written with energy and wit, this is a story of the consuming power of jealousy on the one hand and redemption and the enduring love of a lost child on the other. Underneath the notes, there is a soft velvet bag, diamonds, a necklace. Not little snips of diamonds, big cut and generous like the heart of a woman. Time so deep and clear in the facets that it's like looking into a crystal ball. Underneath the diamonds, there's a piece of sheet music, handwritten. The song says, put it a. So that's her name, the little lost one. You're made for life, says Chloe, if you don't go to jail. She's ours, Chloe. She's your sister now. I'm her father now. What are you going to do with the money? We moved to a new neighborhood where we weren't known. I sold my apartment and I used that money and the cash in the case to buy a piano bar called The Fleece. It was a mafia place, and they needed to get out, so they were fine about the cash. No questions. I put the diamonds in a bank box in her name until she turns 18. I played the song, and I taught it to her. She was singing before she could talk. 
I'm learning to be a father and a mother to her. She asks about her mother, and I say we don't know. I've always told her the truth, or enough of it. And she's white, and we are black, so she knows she was found. The story has to start somewhere. The Gap of Time, part of the Hogarth Shakespeare series, is available now on iTunes and Audible.